disappointment, doubt, fear, anxiety, hopelessness, sadness, loss, grief, the feeling that things aren't quite how you imagined they would be, the feeling that things seem to be going well for everyone else, but what about me? The feeling that others seem to be able to trust God to get them seamlessly from A to B, but I can't. I'd ask for a show of hands for who has experienced any of those emotions at any point in their lives, but I won't because I'm quite sure that all of us have. They're a normal part of our human existence. For some reason, though, there are a lot of us that are reluctant to admit to those feelings. As Christians particularly, we love to share testimonies of times we've been brought through these hard times and difficult emotions, but we don't always like to be so honest in the moment that we're experiencing them. When we moved house, I was cleaning away, as you do, and directing operations, when suddenly my phone pinged with a photo message from our lovely pastor, Mr. Darrell Mallett. And this was the photograph. He had pulled the cooker out, ready to sort of move it, and underneath was enough Cheerios to feed half of the neighborhood, thanks to my lovely children who would put their bowls on the side near the cooker and pour their Cheerios almost into the bowl. So and he'd photographed it for posterity, so I was very pleased about that and kept the photo. So there were lots of other grimy, messy corners as well, and that was the only one that was photographed, thankfully. Um, but of course, there was a part of me that was really embarrassed by that and really wished that my friends hadn't seen it, really hadn't seen all of my hidden corners. But once we'd had a laugh about it and hoovered it out and it was all nice and clean, it was dealt with, it was done, it was clean, it was ready for its new owners. And as I was thinking about this sermon, it just struck me that we can be like that with the messy corners of our lives. We all have them. We all have all of the emotions that go with them, all the ones I listed at the beginning. But we like to pretend that we don't have them and we hide them from others and we don't deal with them. When actually standing together bringing them into the light, acknowledging them as a normal part of our imperfect earthly existence can bring a freedom that we wouldn't have otherwise if we left them festering behind closed doors or cookers. So I'm always conscious that preaching a sermon on disappointment and facing hard things won't hit the mark with everybody because some may have already found those elusive keys to contentment in all circumstances that we all long for. But this year of all years, can't we all say that we've all experienced disappointment, loss, frustration, grief, more so than in any other year? Haven't we all at different points felt the crash and burn, the reach the end of myself and can't keep going, wave of emotions that crashes over us? And if we are fortunate enough not to have felt any of those things, we've certainly found ourselves supporting those who have. And we'll have found ourselves faced with new challenges and hurdles to overcome, and then possibly difficult questions of faith that inevitably come with them. Where is God? Does he hear me? Does he care? So I want to talk today about some important things to hold on to when tough stuff and disappointment comes into our lives, whether it thunders in suddenly or wraps itself around us gradually and imperceptibly. And I want to remind anyone in the thick of battle today that we will face tough challenges as Christians, but God is big enough to sustain us through those challenges. 
even when our faith wavers. And even more than that, the tough times can even grow us and change us for the better, even if it doesn't feel like it right now. Easter Saturday, acknowledging our struggles and disappointments. We all know the rhythm of the Easter story, betrayal, torture, death, burial, resurrection. But I love the concept that Pete Gregg introduces in the, in the Unanswered Prayer course. It's coming up next week for those of us doing it um, on Zoom. He talks about the fact that Easter Saturday can be a metaphor for our lives, parts of our lives. He talks about it a lot more in this coming um, week, so I don't want to say too much about it. Um, if you are not on that course, you can look up the videos for yourself. They're very easily available online. So Pete Gregg argues that we spend much of our lives living in Easter Saturday, which is where we're waiting and wondering and living with our wildest hopes and our darkest fears. I really resonate with that. And I love to imagine um, what it was like for the disciples on Easter Saturday. The only thing we know for certain in John 20, verse 19, is that they were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. And I often wonder when it comes to Easter each year how they would have felt having watched Jesus die. And I imagine being human, there'd be a whole range of emotions. So some of them would have probably remembered Jesus' words with a powerful faith and a hope that it would all have come right. Some might have been terrified, but with little glimmers and echoes of his words resounding in their minds. Others may have felt perhaps they'd given their last three years of their lives to a trick and an illusion and were feeling completely lost. I imagine it was a bit of all of those things. Questions and doubts arising in their minds as they do in us when everything goes silent and everything we hope for feels lost. So many of you will know that I lost my sister nearly four years ago now to cancer. And after she died, I wrote a little reflection on the first Easter I faced, which was six months later. Easter Saturday living, waiting for Sunday to come. Easter Sunday, a strange thought this year, celebrating the impermanence of death when it feels permanent and heavy right now to those of us left here in her wake. Celebrating hope, light and victory when those things still feel a long way away on the hard days and the dark days when grief wraps its bindweed more tightly. Celebrating a God for whom nothing is impossible, yet we did not see our impossible become possible. Joining in with dancing and joy when tears are more my currency. It's easier to face Good Friday. I can relate to a tortured and suffering saviour. He gets it. He's walking it with me. I dwell comfortably in Easter Saturday when hope lay dormant and sadness took hold. I belong with the exhausted disciples and the women overcome with emotion and grief. I'm not at all sure I'm ready for Easter Sunday. Dancing, rejoicing, all things come good. I will stand there one day, feeling it more convincingly. But for now, my life is Friday, Saturday. Sunday stands a long way off. But I'm glad it's there. The hint of possibility, the glimmer of hope draws me on. And unlike the disciples, when we're reflecting on the Easter story, we read the story with hindsight. We know what happens the next morning. We know how this story ends. We can live in the pain of our Easter Saturdays, knowing that there will always be hope, redemption, resurrection on the other side of it. 
not always in the ways we hope and dream, but one ultimate glorious day, it will all make sense. And in the meantime, we can continually be drawn forward in the hope and faith of that redemptive arc of his story, which is our story too. So please know I don't say these things lightly or from a comfortable place of never having experienced these hard realities in my own life. But I know from hard experience that standing in Easter Saturday, Easter Sunday will always come. If you're not feeling it right now, it doesn't mean it's hope doesn't stand there just around the corner, drawing you forward and redeeming your pain. God is a God of redemption and hope even when it's the last thing we can feel or see. For it to be true does not rely on our feelings. A bit after my sister died, um, there was a passage that really spoke to me in Acts. And in it, Paul is traveling as a prisoner on board a ship heading for Rome to have an audience with Caesar. They face a violent storm and they can't even work out where we are. And all looks hopeless. So in verse 20, it says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. And then I'm just not going to read those verses, but Paul urges them then not to give up hope. And he says, So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So verse 20 especially spoke to me. They had seen neither sun or stars for many days, meaning navigation was completely impossible. But the fact they hadn't seen the sun and stars didn't mean they weren't still there. Every truth about God is still true, even when our emotions and our experience tell us otherwise. Even when Paul and his companions couldn't envisage how on earth they would get through the storm, never mind to roam um, as planned, God still had a plan. Eventually, they ran aground on the island of Crete, and from there, they found their way to Rome, where the gospel was preached. And every step of that journey was a vital part of the spread of the gospel around the world. And I sort of feel like that's the redemption and resurrection part of that story that he had to live through. Pete Gregg, in his book, God on Mute, though, talks about not rushing the resurrection. In other words, not being so eager to find the good, to put a positive spin or a brave face on things, that we don't sit with and acknowledge our pain and give ourselves the time and space to grieve and heal. Even Jesus did this. In the message version, the description of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on Maundy Thursday is entitled, The Dark Night. And it says, leaving there, he went as he so often did to Mount Olives. The disciples followed him. When they arrived at the place, he said, pray that you don't give in to temptation. He pulled away from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, Father, remove this cup from me, but please, not what I want. What do you want? At once, an angel from heaven was at his side, strengthening him. He prayed on all the harder. Sweat wrung from him like drops of blood poured off his face. Even Jesus expresses his doubt and pain to God. Even Jesus begs the Father to take this situation away and change it. But he prays a prayer that we can all pray in the hard situations that we face. Please, please take this away. But I'll trust in your plan, whatever the outcome, whatever the pain. Another writer, Jerry Sitzer, who lost his daughter, wife, and mother in the same car crash, says, Denial diminishes the capacity of the soul to grow bigger in response to pain. 
And it made me think of my nan when she recently had a hip replacement operation. And the response to that pain, I think, is a good metaphor for how we can handle emotional and spiritual pain that comes our way. So with a hip patient, they, the doctors get them up out of bed the next day immediately to, to get them walking slowly and to train those muscles to work in that new situation. And so Nan wasn't told to lay a wallow in her pain, and nor was she told to get up and run a marathon. But she had to get up and walk with a limp as best she could, supported and, and helped through the pain until her body adapted and could cope with her new hip. And I just thought that sounded like good advice for our spiritual lives. Like in the Psalms, the best way forward is to acknowledge the pain, get help in coping with it, but also to start limping as best we can, slowly through our situations, trusting that our emotional and spiritual muscles will slowly grow and adapt, and we won't always feel this way. But we don't like to wait patiently, do we? I read some research recently that said um, when someone is surfing the internet, the average time they will wait for a page to load is two seconds. Two seconds. I can believe it as well. I'm sure you all can. You quickly move on to something else if it doesn't load. But we're similar in our Christian lives. We want a testimony of immediate deliverance. But I always wonder whether there should be a place in church for untestimonies, the ones where our prayers weren't answered as we hoped. But instead, we have a small string of miracles of surviving and adapting and undeniably seeing God work amid the pain. I know I have plenty of my own of those to share. As we wait then, moving slowly and tentatively through our hurt and disappointment, I want to talk about a couple of verses and thoughts that will help us to keep limping and gradually become stronger again in the face of our disappointments. Lamentations 3, 19 to 23, finding hope in disappointment. So this passage of scripture has been a life verse to me, and I'm sure many of you will know it. In context, it's a lament, probably written by Jeremiah in 586 BC, mourning the destruction of his beloved city by the Babylonians. And these verses are ones I've hung on to and ones that have brought me hope in really hard times. It's verse, uh, Lamentations 3, 19 to 23. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And in the NLT it says, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And far from being a gentle nod to hard emotions, it's a powerful piece of poetry, and it reflects the pain and injustice of human loss, and it's filled with crushing emotions that he expresses powerfully. As someone who dabbles in writing a bit of poetry myself, I was interested to read that in this scripture, Jeremiah used the whole of the Hebrew alphabet, a letter to start each line of his poem, to portray the full extent of his pain and sorrow. Almost like an A to Z of human suffering, expressing all the emotions he was feeling. But the poet doesn't stop at those emotions, and that's the key. He feels and expresses the whole range of emotions, and he isn't afraid to face them, admit them, and name them. But the whole theme of the book and of the passage is his, the moving is of his thinking from despair to hope, from repentance to renewal. And he's saying that he thinks of what he's been through, and he's actually still going through. And it depresses him, it demoralizes him, it disillusions him, and he feels 
utterly miserable. But then he says these verses, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And I love what the NLT does with that verse. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And this verse just gets me excited every time I read it, time and time again. What a verb to choose, dare. It's not a passive, taking life, lying down verb. I spend half my working week as an English teacher getting children to pick out the words that are important in a text and explain you know, the, the impact of them. And I just think with this one, it's an active, defiant verb. It's a choice that we can make in the midst of hard times. And I think it's a verb that shouts courage and boldness in the middle of horrible things. I dare to hope. Doesn't it just call forth the courage and the desire to do this, to follow that through? Remembering and training our minds to focus on the steady and changing character of a loving, merciful, compassionate God. Remembering he is that, even when we're not feeling it, is enough to move us from despair and hopelessness to hope and trust. One Bible commentator says of these verses, the hope the writer expresses here is not created by denying or minimizing suffering and misery. Rather, these are transformed when the mind is turned to God. And another commentary I read said of this passage of scripture is like a lit match in a dark room. One of those beautiful moments we all need sometimes when everything seems dark and a match is struck, however briefly. And we see enough of a glimpse of the character and presence of God in the darkness to remind us he's there, to spur us on, knowing that all hasn't been lost, however much it seems that way. And the lit match idea reminded me of the, the night that my sister died. It was the evening that would turn out to be the night that she died. And I sat in the relatives' lounge at Tapping House Hospice, looking out into the darkness of the courtyard outside. And I cried out to God, and I asked him, how am I going to get through this, God? And a quiet, calming voice just dropped into my soul by following the next light. And I looked out into the courtyard, and it was really dark, but I could see one dim light lighting part of the path and further ahead another, and a bit further ahead another. And each light wasn't enough to show the whole path, but each one did its part in getting us a bit further along the path, a bit further again. And I feel like these lights are available to all of us in our spiritual lives, and they come in lots of forms, some simple. They can be a text from a friend, a line from a worship song, a beautiful view even, a scripture that helps us to stand. And if we could learn to recognize these lit matches in a dark room, God feels less distant than he might feel at first. And we begin to take the next step into the next patch of light and then the next one that guides us out of our darkness. I love the Wren Collective song, Weep With Me. It says, what's true in the light is still true in the dark. You're good and you're kind and you care for this heart. These kind of declarations are so powerful in the midst of our disappointments. Perhaps you've got your own set of verses or songs that you stand on and declare in tough times. Keep doing it. Pete Gregg uses an example in his book of a friend who lost his sense of taste but keeps eating because he knows it gives him nutrition even though he can't taste it. Even when we're not tasting the goodness of God, it is still there. And taking in and declaring his promises in scripture do us the world of good even when it doesn't feel as if it's the case. Finally then, Romans 5, verse 3 to 5, and John 16, verse 33. God works in us 
through our disappointments. If in the early days someone had said to me, don't worry, Georgie, God will change you and shape you through this experience, I'd have probably said something I might regret later. No one wants to hear platitudes or cliches when they're walking through tough, life-altering situations. However, over time, as we hang on in and push through by the grace of God, our times of suffering and disappointment, we can come to understand the truth of this sentiment. And like the passage in Lamentations and some of the Psalms I've mentioned, it only comes with the outworking of a process that includes acknowledging the hard emotions and uncomfortable realities. We buy so easily, particularly in the Western world, into the notion that suffering shouldn't happen, that a straightforward life is the norm to be aimed at. Then when suffering comes, we're surprised, horrified, knocked off our feet, and some walk away from faith as a result. To approach it from a different perspective then gives us a position of stability and confidence. Suffering will happen and we will get through it, even if not always in ways that we hope or imagine. We all know the verse spoken by Jesus and we quote it quite rightly to give us hope and help us to trust God. John 16 verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We like the beginning and the end of this verse, but I don't feel as if we dwell sufficiently in the middle for the reality of it to really sink in, hence why we can be so surprised and blindsided when troubles come. I want to dwell with this verse for a minute or two because a lot can be taken from the particular word used here for trouble. In the original Greek, trouble was the word, wait for it, phlipsis, which makes you sound a bit like you've forgotten to put your teeth in which carried the sense of being crushed, pressed, squashed, hemmed in, compressed, and it expressed sheer physical pressure on a person. It's a strong term which doesn't refer to minor inconveniences, but to real hardship. So if we know for sure, and we are told categorically, that we will have trials and tribulations, not just small ones, but ones of a great and pressing nature, and yet we can trust God through them, I think it takes out some of the emotional and spiritual agony we suffer because of them. We can ask ourselves if God is there, if he really cares, if he hears our prayers, why others' lives seem to be so blessed when mine isn't. But this verse reminds us that none of those things are true. None of them are the case. Tim Keller wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and he says, this balance, that God is just and will bring final justice, But life in the meantime is often deeply unfair, keeps us from many deadly errors. And he goes on to say that we can treat God as an accomplice who we stick with when he does what we want, but unfriending him when things don't go our way, which is a social media term for those not in the know about that sort of thing. Troubles and tribulation are a normal part of our life in a fallen, imperfect world, but they don't have the final say. They don't define us, and they don't define our relationship with our creator, who is still with us and does love us and who hurts with us. Even when we're in the midst of these trials and we're longing for an end but not seeing one, God is outworking his goodwill for us within them. The late English versions of this verse use the word tribulation from the Latin word tribulum, which is literally a thing with teeth that tears. There's one there. It was a heavy piece of timber with spikes in it used for threshing corn or grain. And it was drawn over the grain to separate the wheat from the chaff. 
So I think we can draw that analogy further to say that God is doing a work in us, in our character, in our lives, in our futures, even in the midst of the hard and crushing disappointments that we go through. And that's so hard to see and trust and live with that it's absolutely true. Romans 5, verse 3 to 5 says, Not only so, but we also glory, or rejoice in the NLT, in our sufferings, problems, and trials, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in AD 57, Paul wrote those words to the Christians in Rome, and at that point, they hadn't yet begun to experience the full force of persecution that would come a few years later with Nero's reign. The point of Romans was to give Paul an opportunity to lay down some doctrinal foundations to help the Christians live the life in all its fullness that Jesus had talked about during his time on earth. So how interesting then that he included this forewarning about suffering and how to respond to it. What an important aspect of teaching about faith for us to pass on to one another and to future generations. So Paul encourages the early Christians that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. In another book I read, which was called Barefoot, A Story of Surrendering to God, the narrator talks about how easy it is to allow our suffering to do quite a different work in us. She says it can produce resignation, which steadily and stealthily erodes our hope. And she goes on to say it's all too easy to aim low, to avoid disappointment and settle for a resigned cynicism instead of a confident hope, and that that in itself is a way of hardening our hearts to God. How I agree with this and how actively I've had to battle it when I've seen others receive miracles when I didn't. But how much it's worth the journey and the effort to lean back into God, to be real, to cry, to get prayer, to allow others to call us higher again so we can recalibrate our hearts again to trust that God is doing a great work, whatever the outcome of our suffering, and that we can still trust him for the next situation we face and the next one after that and the next. The end of the message version of these verses says, in alert expectancy such as this, we're never left feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary. We can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. We can't do any of this in our own strength. But as we open up to God afresh amidst our disappointments, he is faithful to carry us through and grow us in the process. Lewis Smedes, in his book, How Can It Be All Right When Everything Is All Wrong, says, God's own answer to suffering is to join it, to feel it, hurt with it. A sufferer screams to God in the all-wrongness of his life, why have you abandoned me? God answers by joining him in life's most horrible wrongness. And it's a bit like the wonderful analogy we've seen in the Unanswered Prayer Course of God parachuting in to walk with us in our darkest valleys. Recently, I wrote a haiku, as you do, um, which is a, as a poem with a certain amount of syllables in each line. It was for a writing challenge that I was completing this Lent, and it was called Blessed. And I put, we pray, bless me, Lord, meaning make life easy. He blesses differently. If only we could see what God sees and how he sees us as we walk through our tough situations and crushing disappointments, perhaps we would walk through them all the more confidently, knowing he's doing a good work in us through them. <clears throat> 
I love the song, Where Were You, from the shack. In the song, the songwriter laments that she was calling and waving, almost like an aeroplane passing overhead, and she felt completely abandoned by God, left to walk the difficult stuff alone. And in the song, she alludes to the really famous footprints in the sand poem, saying, one set of footprints on the path I've been on, but you say you've been here all along. By the end of the song, though, she declares with faith, you carried me through. On your shoulders, black and blue, I never knew the footprints in the sand were you, were you. One set of footprints on a path I'd been on, now I know they were yours all along. She realizes the absolute truth of the situation that God has not abandoned her or forsaken her, but she has to walk through the hard valley of doubt, fear, disappointment, and wavering faith to ultimately come out the other side. Even as we walk through things like this, we can trust God is at work in us, not just carrying us through, but shaping us to be more like him and fine-tuning our lives to be stable and faith-filled and glorifying to him in ways we couldn't have imagined before. Tim Keller, again in his book that I mentioned earlier, says, people who endure and get through suffering become more resilient. You might not be able to see redemption and hope and meaning in your suffering yet. You might not feel at all resilient right now. You might be at the hard, hard stage of needing to stand and just cling on to God through each day. But be encouraged today. Disappointments and doubts are normal and they happen to everyone. God does give us everything we need to get through each difficult day. God is there and working even when we can't feel him. Lift your head today. Ask for prayer. Put your hands in his afresh ask the band to come back up as I just close. I wanted to end by sharing a picture God once gave me um, when I felt like I was on the edge of a sheer cliff clinging on by my fingertips. I've shared it once before in a ladies meeting but I just felt it was relevant again today. And in the picture I was hanging over a cliff edge desperately clinging on by my fingertips and in the end I ran out of strength and I had to just let go not knowing whether God would catch me or not. And as I let go Instead of falling, I fell straight into his huge outstretched hand and he lifted me and placed me on more solid ground. I was never going to crash the rocks below. He was always there to lift me and place me on more solid ground. I just had to let go and trust him. So as I close, I've asked Emma and the band to play their beautiful song, I Lift My Hands to Believe Again. And if you need to do that today, please do as we listen to the song. Just sit back and take this opportunity to use the words of the song to make some fresh declarations of faith and hope today. Even in the middle of disappointments and doubts, he is our refuge and our strength, and he is faithful.